It's not just good conversation, it's your voice on the weekends. Weekends with Kenny Rahmeyer on News Radio KLBJ. How you doing? I always appreciate your calm, reasoned approach to everything. Hi, Kenny. Great show as always. It's supposed to be other people talking, not you blah, blah, blahing on and on and on. Come on, talk to me. Good afternoon to you. Well, let's get started this way. A free some of the hostages deal in the Mideast. We'll have all the latest on that coming up for you here on KLBJ. Texas Governor Greg Abbott makes a little news this afternoon. He and former President Trump down in the Rio Grande Valley this afternoon. I'm here today to officially proclaim my endorsement for Donald J. Trump to be president of the United States of America again. We'll have more on that coming up here on KLBJ and some new poll numbers from NBC. Not very good for President Biden. So those are just some of the things that we'll be talking about with you this afternoon right here on News Radio KLBJ. I'm Kenny Rahmeyer, live and local for you this afternoon. Thanks, as always, for being with us on the weekends. Here on KLBJ. And of course, you can always join us. Give us a call or send us a text at 512-836-0590. Let's give you the latest on what's going on in the Mideast. Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer said earlier today that the parties are closer than ever in closing a deal to secure the release of some of the hostages being held by Hamas. He was on NBC's Meet the Press today, and here's a, a little bit of what he had to say about the status of these negotiations that have been going on now for several weeks. Some of the gaps uh, have now narrowed. Uh, some of the issues that were uh, at odds uh, have now uh, been closed out, but we are not finished. Uh, there is not yet a, a deal in place, and I think uh, it would be premature uh, to conclude that this is inevitable, given how close uh, we have come uh, in the past. It is a very high priority to try to get this done. They're making some progress, and we hope that that will be concluded soon so that these people uh, can finally uh, come home. He went on to say there are some outstanding areas of disagreement. They're very complicated and very sensitive negotiations have been narrowed. And so we still don't know a whole lot of details. There's a, a little bit about this in the Washington Post today. It said the release could begin within the next several days. That's barring any last-minute hitches. And this could lead to the first sustained pause in all the fighting over there in Gaza. So this would be a detailed six-page set of written terms that, among other things, would freeze combat operations for at least five days, while an initial 50 or more hostages are released in smaller batches every 24 hours. Not immediately clear how many of the 239 people believed to be held hostage in Gaza would be released under this deal. 
Washington Post reports the stop in fighting would also be intended to allow a significant increase in the amount of humanitarian assistance that would be allowed to come in. So, according to the Post, the outline of this deal has been put together during these past several weeks in Qatar with Israel, the United States, and Hamas as the the principal parties that, according to Arabs, and other diplomats. Brett McGurk is the White House National Security Council's top Middle East official. He's on an extended trip to the region trying to solidify the hostage release plan, including these meetings in Qatar. McGurk uh, said yesterday that negotiations have been, quote, intensive and ongoing, end quote. And so that's the latest that we know about That's significant development that's popped over the weekend. We also know that, based on reports this weekend, Congress is is set up for a pretty fierce battle over the next several weeks or so over some kind of military assistance, not only for Israel, but Ukraine as well. So it's reported, even though the members of Congress who are now away on Thanksgiving break are not facing any specific deadlines when it comes to either a Ukraine aid package or an Israel aid package. It it appears there's a lot of uncertainty just about how they're going to proceed once they come back from their Thanksgiving break. One of the reports I have here today says the debate among the mainstream Democrats is, uh, is, is pretty contentious. And it's unclear if the conversations are going to uh, ever get to any kind of congressional action. I think we'd have to to say that's probably going to happen, right? But it may not be very pretty between now and then. Apparently, Democrats' support for Israel's military has been eroding in recent weeks. And there's a potential for more moderate Democrats to start calling for conditioning aid to Israel. And in fact, that has happened as yesterday, the senator from Vermont, Bernie Sanders, was calling on the United States aid package to Israel to be conditioned on, quote, what he said would be a change in military and political positions. He said that the United States should withhold any further assistance unless there's a fundamental change in the military and political position. Not a lot of details as to what Senator Sanders was talking about there. But it appears nothing's going to happen over the next several days as members of Congress are away for the Thanksgiving holiday. 512-836-0590 if you'd like to join us here on KLBJ. Meantime, protests continuing all around the world and, and certainly here in the United States. I just saw a headline on Fox News moments ago that... Protesters in Chicago were blocking one of the main roadways there in that city. And then last night, this out of the L.A. Times, protests by about a 1,000 people upset over U.S. support for Israel. They basically broke into the convention center in Sacramento where the California Democrat Party was having a, a big convention. They uh, caused security guards to lock the entrances 
to the convention center in downtown Sacramento and, and brought the whole uh, convention to an early end. Demonstrators barged through the security doors around 6 last night, opened several more doors, allowed more people to stream into the building. Protesters shouting about President Biden calling him Genocide Joe. And not to be left out of all this mess, one of our local U.S. members of Congress, Greg Kassar, former city council member here, as it's reported that members of Congress belonging to the Democrat Socialists of America have not condemned the violent anti-Israel protest that targeted the Democrat National Convention there in Washington, D.C. last week, or, or that committee. Familiar names like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Cori Bush, Rashida Tlaib, and, yes, from Texas, Greg Kassar, none of whom responded to Fox News for a request for comment about the violence that erupted there at the Democrat National Committee headquarters and and all the fallout from that. 512-836-0590, just getting started here this afternoon. One other related story found very interesting out of the Washington Post today. I think it's the kinds of questions that are being asked by, I'm going to suggest many of you listening this afternoon. Again, this is from the Post, a surge in attacks on U.S. forces over in the Mideast have roiled some within the Defense Department. Officials frustrated by what they consider, I'm quoting here, an incoherent strategy for countering the Iranian proxies believed responsible. And these same officials are acknowledging that the limited retaliatory strikes approved by President Biden so far have failed to stop the violence. One defense official quoted here saying there's no clear definition of what we're trying to deter. He said, are we trying to deter future Iranian attacks like this? Well, that's clearly not working. The Post piece goes on to say since October 17th, U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria have faced near daily assaults, rocket fire, one-way drones, at least 61 incidents, and about as many injuries. In response to that, the Biden administration has authorized three rounds of airstrikes, all in eastern Syria. Those strikes have destroyed purported warehouses, holding weapons and ammunition, a command post, a training facility. But as the officials acknowledge, each operation has failed to slow the drumbeat of hostile activity, which in all cases resumed almost immediately. Senior defense officials said the Pentagon has provided additional options to the president beyond the actions have been taken so far. And within the Defense Department, there's growing doubt about the present approach. 512-836-0590. Give us a call or send us a text. That's the latest in what's going on in the Mideast. When we come right back, yeah, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who's uh, still got to be stinging from 
a big downer in the legislative session as right before the weekend, an amendment was filed and passed and pulled support for any kind of education vouchers out of a big uh, school funding bill. He was on record over the weekend on Twitter as saying, well, this is just another step toward getting you know, something passed at some point. So no announcements as to what's next, no plans as to where do things go from here. Uh, in any event, his uh, appearance with the former president, Donald Trump, down in the Rio Grande Valley today maybe takes a little bit of the headlines away from that bad news for the governor on Friday afternoon. We'll have the latest on Trump and Abbott down in the valley coming up here on KLBJ. And Kenny Rommeyer back with you on this Sunday afternoon. Thanks a lot for being with us here for the Thanksgiving holidays on News Radio KLBJ. So I mentioned the governor, Greg Abbott, and the former president, Donald Trump, down in the Rio Grande Valley today in Edinburgh, Texas. And among other things, they uh, were meeting with state authorities down there in the southern part of the state, all having to do with Operation Lone Star. Now, Trump and Abbott uh, served some meals there in Edinburgh to the Texas National Guard soldiers, Texas Department of Public Safety troopers, and others. But the big news came when Texas Governor Greg Abbott endorsed uh, Trump once again to be president of the United States. I'm here today to officially proclaim my endorsement for Donald J. Trump to be president of the United States of America again. In his remarks, uh, former President Trump outlined a pretty hard-line stance on immigration, uh, outlining some of the things that he would do day one when he, he came back into the presidency, said he would terminate every open borders policy of the Biden administration, and said he believed that his hard-line immigration policies would make Governor Abbott's job much easier. 512-836-0590 here on KLBJ. So what do you make of this? Big deal for President, uh, former President Trump, I suppose, right? I mean, he and Abbott have been pretty tight all the way since uh, Trump first got into the race back in 2016. And the governor's been a strong supporter of Trump ever since. So does this, in a big red state like Texas... Not a big deal, maybe, right, as far as that goes. Does Abbott need Trump more than Trump needs Abbott at this point? Is, is that close relationship going to help Abbott? Is that going to help him try to get some kind of education voucher plan passed here in another special session of the legislature, if that's called? 512-836-0590 here on KLBJ on the immigration front. I'll just throw this in. I've, we've seen the stories about a lot of the big cities around the country, especially the, the sanctuary cities, are ripping at the seams. How are they going to handle all the migrants that are coming in, that have been shipped in, bussed in, all the rest? So we know that a lot of those cities are given the migrants options to go someplace else. One of the reports out of the AP today 
says some of these cities are spending taxpayer dollars now on the bus rides, the plane trips, the train tickets, so that the migrants can go other places. In Denver, specifically in this article, nearly half of the 27,000 migrants who've arrived in Denver since November of last year, so just in the last 12 months or so, nearly half have chosen to take a bus, a plane, or a train ticket to other cities. And Denver has spent about $4.5 million in city taxpayer dollars to send these migrants to to other cities. Data is not available from New York and some of these other cities on, on how much they're spending so far. We do know that uh, New York is offering, what, what do we hear, one-way plane tickets to any place in the world for some of these migrants. So Denver has bought nearly 3,000 tickets to Chicago, 2,300 tickets to New York, and, and yeah, around uh, 1,000 tickets back here to Texas and, and on to Florida. 512-836-0590. What a mess. What a mess. Martin's calling in this afternoon on KLBJ. Hello, Martin. Hey, Mr. Romar, can you hear me okay? Yeah, absolutely. Very good. Um, I feel very trapped because Abbott is no Trump. And I feel like it's like is Abbott the best we can do here in Texas? Those two are going to latch on to each other. Abbott's going to latch on to Trump, but I don't think that uh, Abbott is conservative enough for a lot of us out here. And yet he's won several times, right, Martin? Time after time after time. True, but like I said, that's as close as we've got, I guess, other than Huffines, and I don't know that he's really much of a candidate. So... And, but he keeps, I guess my point is that, to me, I feel like Abbott kind of keeps selling us out, kind of heading towards a Phelan type of thing, you know? What do you do? What do you do? You want somebody conservative, but you, but the closest one is more purple than red. And so do you think what he's done this afternoon in endorsing former President Trump, is that going to help him or hurt him here in Texas long term? That's going to help him, but it's not going to help us or Texas. It'll get him elected, but it's not going to help the citizen of Texas who wants to have conservative state be conservative. Martin, thanks. Good to hear from you this afternoon on KLBJ. 512 836 0590. You can give us a call or send us a text here on KLBJ as we're talking presidential politics. I, I've got to make mention of this because this is three weekends in a row now, three in a row, that the political advisor most closely associated with former President Barack Obama, David Axelrod, three weekends in a row now, he has made news talking about President Biden being too old for re-election. This weekend, he's quoted in a Maureen Dowd, she's a columnist for the New York Times, quoted in, in her piece, and he says, I think he, Biden, has a 50-50 shot here 
but no better than that, maybe a little worse. Quoted as saying, he thinks he can cheat nature here, and it's really risky. They've got a real problem if they're counting on Trump to win it for them. I remember Hillary doing that too. Now, so that's what happened this weekend. Last weekend, he was on CNN and was was talking about one thing that they, the Biden administration and the campaign team, can't reverse is the age issue. Axelrod said no matter how effective the president is behind the scenes. And he caught a lot of flack for that, but it was the weekend before that that he made news as well. Talking about President Biden being too old. This is no coincidence. For this to happen three weekends in a row from this high-profile guy in the Democrat Party, it's not just coincidence. Now, not sure what to make of it. Is he softening the beachhead? Is he laying the groundwork for some kind of bigger move for President Biden to be out, either pushed out, counseled out, kicked out? Don't know. The timing, I find, is very interesting. Three weekends in a row from such a high-profile guy, and age is the issue every time. Well, that was reflected. It was a huge deep dive piece in the Washington Post this weekend, all about the Democrat anxiety over the age issue with President Biden. So the, the Post says they talked, they had 30 interviews with Democrat aides, strategists, Biden campaign officials, and others. And the central concern amongst all of them, the president turns 81 tomorrow, He's lost a step, showing visible signs of aging, struggling to sell his economic accomplishments. And there are worries that his campaign is devoid of any major events, any organizing efforts, not doing enough to deal with the issues of of Trump, who's doing well in the polls. And so this piece says there's a lot of uh, unease, and it's evident across the party. Administration officials, elected officials, big donors, top strategists, all concerned about the age issue with Joe Biden. Now, the White House, the Biden campaign, dismissing all these concerns, but there's more to it, and we'll talk about it coming up. Quick news break here on KLBJ. And Kenny Rollmeyer back with you live and local for you this afternoon, right here on News Radio KLBJ. If you just joined us, a couple of things we talked about in the first half hour. It appears, uh, although it's not a done deal yet, there, there is a deal in the making to try to release some of the hostages being held by Hamas. Negotiations are ongoing. Our uh, Biden administration officials saying getting closer, but still nothing is done yet. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott down in the Valley this afternoon with former President Donald Trump, Abbott endorsing former President Trump, for another four years in the White House. And then right before the news break, we're talking about David Axelrod, key advisor to former President Obama, three weekends in a row now, making news, CNN, the New York Times, talking about 
President Biden essentially being too old to run for office. And I'm saying that's not coincidence that that's happening three weekends in a row from such a high, highly regarded um, political operative in the Democrat Party. And so a, a huge piece in the Washington Post today about a lot of people concerned about this age issue, a lot of Democrat anxiety from administration officials, elected officials, donors, and others, even though the White House dismissing all this as unjustified, current and former aides, campaign staffers say that Biden's as sharp as ever, they say. He's drilling staffers on the finer points of policy issues, maintaining a busy travel schedule. And they reference two visits to active war zones in Israel and Ukraine. Is anybody believing that he's as sharp as ever and drilling staffers on the finer points of policy issues, please. That's an insult to our intelligence for us to, to believe that based on what we see. So this piece in the Washington Post beyond the age issue, people expressing concern about the Biden campaign's polling strategy. They say it's been too limited. They're also concerned about the thin operations in some of the battleground states. And some are worried. Donors say they don't have any plans to, uh, to do anything about it. Multiple Democrats privately say they think Vice President Harris would prove even weaker than Biden as a general election candidate. So really interesting piece in the Washington Post. So with the likes of Axelrod saying this stuff publicly now for three weekends in a row, obviously a lot of behind-the-scenes conversations about much the same thing. Is any of this going to surface? Is any of this going to result in any kind of change in what happens going forward? And then on top of all this, the Biden administration, the president specifically, got hammered today in latest polling from NBC News. The, the president's approval rating, the lowest level of his presidency, 40% now. And 57% disapprove of, of how the president is handling things. And by the way, the poll says that Biden is behind Trump, at least according to NBC's polling, for the first time in a hypothetical general election matchup. Deficits well within the margin of error, but nevertheless, one poll, the NBC poll, showing that it's, it's that close. On the Republican side, Trump's the first choice of Republican primary voters, 58%. Say it's Trump, 18%, DeSantis, 13%, Nikki Haley. So that's just one NBC News poll. It's the latest that was out there today. But there's been others. So just a quick glance. I mean, CNN had an article today, CNN, saying you take a look at some recent national surveys, CBS News, CNN, Fox News, Marquette University, Quinnipiac University, all five, CNN says, high-quality polls 
that meet their standards, CNN standards for publication. All five give Trump an advantage of two to four points over Biden among registered or likely voters. And CNN says on their own, none of these data points mean too much, but when they average them together, I'm quoting here, they paint a picture of an incumbent with a real problem, end quote. And then the article goes on to say, best explanation for Biden's troubles is age. Perhaps more than any other indicator, the question of whether Biden is too old to be president has changed the most from 2020. It references the the big New York Times, Siena College polls released earlier this month from those battleground states, right? Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Michigan. Out of those, 71% of registered voters said Biden's too old to be an effective president. In 2020, it was about half as many, 36% said Biden was too old. President's got problems. I still think the Wall Street Journal editorial piece this weekend was was one of the better pieces out there, which really focused in on not just the numbers, dismal as they are, and acknowledged President's going to be 81 tomorrow. I'm quoting here, he's struggling on camera, limiting his public schedule. His aides fear he might trip again on TV. Even Politico, left-leaning news outlet, quoted as Biden not going to be able to govern and campaign in the manner of previous incumbents. He simply doesn't have the capacity to do it. His staff doesn't trust him to even try. That's from Politico. So the Wall Street Journal editorial piece says, and why is he asking the public to keep him in the Oval Office until 2029, when he's going to be 86? The journal says if he can't take the rigors of a presidential campaign, why would voters think he can handle four more years of a grueling job like the presidency? And then one of the conclusions is so right. Given Biden's age and obvious decline, running for re-election is an act of profound selfishness, not just on his part, but on the part of family members close to him, those in his orbit, cabinet members, and all the rest. You don't think they have concerns along the lines of what the Washington Post piece has uh, illuminated for us this weekend? One other thing I think is overlooked. Any of you in our audience familiar with those who have cognitive issues, and, and I'm no medical expert. I'm not saying the president has dementia. I'm not saying he's got Alzheimer's. Nothing like that. That's up to medical professionals. I'm giving you my input, my opinions based on what I'm seeing on the cameras in front of us every day. But if you've had any familiarity with people that have had cognitive issues, you know a common trait, they're quick-tempered, many times they're stubborn, many times they're defensive. So you're going to leave it up to this guy to make the call? Of course he's not going to say, yeah, I ought to go. He's not going to be rational. He's not going to be self-serving in that regard. He's going to be self-serving to say, no, I'm going to stick it out. He's going to dig his heels in, which is apparently what he's been doing up to this point. How long is that going to last? Some other polling data, not good for 
the president, he's struggling to connect with younger voters. Among voters 18 to 29, back in 2020, Biden beat Trump by 24 percentage points. This new NBC News poll released today shows hypothetical matchup between Biden and Trump. 46% of the voters 18 to 34 supported Trump, 42% for Biden. And his approval ratings fell to 31% among voters 18 to 34. 70% of those young voters disapprove of his handling of the war in the Mideast. So, a lot of problems on multiple fronts for President Biden, all revolving around the age issue. And what, if anything, is going to come out of it? You would like to thank somebody willing to put the good of the country before his own aspirations, would acknowledge the issues that he had, his family, some close advisors would pull him aside and say, hey, it's time to step aside. Some of you might be saying, well, the same thing could have been said about Trump when he was trying to hang on to the presidency a few years ago, right? All of that's going to continue to play out in uh, all the trials that are yet to yet to happen. I read some of the same things you all have probably. Looks like some of these, it's really going to be a challenge to have a lot of these trials play out, whether it's the documents case, Mar-a-Lago, the the January 6th case with the the riots at the Capitol and, and Trump's role in that. A real challenge for all of that to play out prior to the elections just under a year from now. So we'll see how that goes. 512-836-0590 here on KLBJ. Lots more to get to. Stay with us. And Kenny Rommeyer back with you here on a Sunday afternoon. Thanks for being with us on the weekends on News Radio KLBJ. You may have noticed, you've been keeping up with some of the news about the President's green energy plans, right? The Wall Street Journal has a piece, Energy Transitions, Getting a Dose of Reality. Offshore wind projects are being scrapped. Renewable energy companies' stock prices are tanking. And the big car companies, right, reining in electric vehicle plans as demand is weakening. Meantime, you got the oil and gas industry. Look at these big uh, mergers, you know, of Exxon and Chevron and others. Mega deals, right? essentially making investments that, that tell us fossil fuels are going to be around for a long time. And so it's interesting that as the administration has put a lot of money into some of these green energy projects, a lot of them not panning out. And so even as President Biden was talking climate change with China's Xi in San Francisco earlier this week, you got to know that the the big climate agenda on the part of the Biden administration is, is having some issues, right? Here's one expert of 
quoted in Bloomberg News, said the U.S. offshore wind industry appears to be fundamentally broken. Problems with permitting, rising costs. And, of course, our government's heavily subsidized a lot of these offshore wind developments through the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. But uh, this piece says that the state of that industry is so dire, numerous energy market experts are saying that another government bailout might be just around the corner. And then the administration, of course, saying, okay, well, there's offshore wind, but what about solar power as, as a way to replace a lot of the fossil fuels in the years ahead? Well, this piece says solar companies had a rough 2023 so far. A lot of their stocks are down for several of the leading solar producers. And so I guess the administration is thinking, all right, one way to fix the flagging green energy agenda here is to keep throwing more money at it. And so two things that the president's done this weekend. The administration announced it's proposing extending a tax credit to boost those offshore wind energy projects. Some might say that's throwing good money after bad. Over $7 billion has been invested in offshore wind projects since Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act. So that's one thing. And then it appears the administration once again trying to determine what kind of appliances you're going to have in your house. As the president's using special wartime powers to increase U.S. production of heat pumps going to be funding nine heat pump manufacturing projects with $169 million from that bill last year. Have you checked the prices on heat pumps? I mean, I think one of the reasons those are not going over real well is because they're pretty pricey, right? And then, of course, you got the electric vehicle market. And demand has slowed. You got car makers. Their stocks are down based on their EV failures. GM, Ford. Their stock price is down about 25% over the last 12 months. Tesla, stock's up about 30%. But even Tesla's experiencing slower growth. One of these days, we'll, we'll get into a, a pretty deep dive on on EVs and the pros and cons. It's, I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there. I mean, I've, I read one article recently. I won't have time to get into it today. But one of the big reasons that, that people are not buying electric cars, the range anxiety, right? And, and no place to recharge because of the infrastructure issues. And... And even there was one article recently that talked about one of the biggest obstacles of, of, of people adopting a lot of these EVs is because the dealerships are not pushing them. Much easier to sell a fossil fuel than, than an EV car. 
And that's so we'll we'll maybe one of these days do a real deep dive on the EV market, the pros and the cons, the challenges. But the the bigger picture is that's one component of the president's green energy agenda that appears to be on the ropes and president's making some news this weekend by throwing money at heat pumps and the offshore wind market trying to uh, to keep all that going. 512-836-0590 if you'd like to join us here on KLBJ. I wanted to get to a few other things before we run out of time this afternoon. You give us a call or send us a text here on KLBJ. You heard about this, the Army. This is, I guess both these stories fall into the big never mind category for the Biden administration. The Army's now trying to bring back those soldiers that were kicked out, the soldiers that rejected the COVID vaccine mandate. So they're reportedly receiving letters addressed to a former service member. Said there's new Army guidance now that would correct their military records of those kicked out. So if these soldiers want to apply to return to service, just contact their local Army or Army Reserve Office, the National Guard recruiter, for more information. More than 8,000 troops kicked out. Tens of thousands of National Guard members sidelined and lost real time and pay. A lot of them said, I'm not going to re-enlist. And then, of course, there were a whole lot of, of soldiers that tried to get religious or uh, medical exemptions of some kind. Most of those were denied. So the administration's having a big do-over on the soldiers that they've said, get out of here because you won't take your COVID shots. In that same vein, the New York Times editorial piece this weekend, a big editorial piece yesterday, said that the school closures in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, quoting here, may prove to be the most damaging disruption in the history of American education, end quote. And the editorial went on to talk about the significant learning losses from keeping around 50 million kids out of the classroom because of COVID and urging elected officials and the education community to move quickly to heal some of the damage. Now, interestingly, the Times didn't talk about previous editorial pieces that they had back in 2020, for example, advocating for school closures. So you would think, all right, I guess the editorial board's entitled to change their mind. Would it be reasonable for them to acknowledge that they were once against this and now, you see what I mean? That's pretty lame, isn't it? Just go ahead and own it and say that things have changed. You've learned more, positions evolved, whatever. But to come out so high and mighty and then expect everybody to get amnesia over what you all wrote about just a few years ago, it's pretty lame. Pretty lame, it seems to me. By the way, the majority of 
eligible Americans haven't yet gotten their COVID shots, flu shots either for that matter, according to Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Only about 15% of adults 18 and older have gotten an updated COVID shot. Around 36% have gotten a flu shot. And about 50% say they don't plan on getting any of the new COVID vaccine. So that's a quick update on that front. Out of the Wall Street Journal today, a new crime trend. It's not good for the retailers. Burglars now using stolen vehicles to barge through storefronts. And then either loot the ATMs, get the guns, what other, other valuables they can get their hands on. It's called RAM raiding. And, of course, retailers have already had so many challenges of, of people just coming in, busting the place up, right? A gang of them, taking out anything they can. A lot of it believed to be organized retail theft rings. The battering rams a choice, according to the journal, stolen Hyundais and Kias according to uh, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. says these cars have kind of become the targets of criminals nationwide because they lack certain anti-theft technology and they're easy to steal. Attacks have been concentrated mainly on the West Coast. I mean, here's one example. Earlier this month, the thieves used a backhoe, crashed into a convenience store, yanked out the ATM with chains. So not a lot of stats on these RAM rating cases so far. But, I mean, there's some retailers who are trying to do something about it, trying to protect themselves. They put these bollards out in front of the store. The bollards are filled with steel. They're anchored in the ground. It costs anywhere from $600 to $10,000 each. They say the highest price ones can withstand a full impact from a vehicle. You got to wonder if that's we're going to see more and more of that from retailers. I mean, they got to have somebody, a guard or security person on the inside, right, to try to protect stuff that way, and then something on the outside because of this new trend called RAM rating. California's been the hardest hit so far, kind of uh, as a result of a lot of the protests, the BLM protests, and all the rest from a few years ago, where. Yeah, a lot of law enforcement agencies have been understaffed. Hmm. Imagine that. Hey, thanks a lot for being with us this afternoon. Executive producer Garrett, thank you very much. Hope you all have a safe and happy Thanksgiving holiday and stick around. The latest in news coming up next right here on News Radio KLBJ.